The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. So take our Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. And we'll start reading at verse 16. This is God's holy and inspired word. If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also, and if the root is holy, The branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the the rich root, the fatness of the root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you're arrogant, remember it's not you who supports the root, the root supports you. You will say... Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Amen. You may be seated. Did you hear the text? Do not be conceited, but fear. Did you hear the text? If he did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Did you hear the text? Behold then the kindness and severity of God. Did you hear the text? To those who fell severity. But to you God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness. Did you hear the text? Otherwise you also will be cut off. We dare not trifle with the word of God. We dare not act as if what we're about to do for the next 50 minutes or so is just something that we do every Sunday and it's just part of the ritual and it's what we do because we believe the Bible and all of that. Uh, What I want to say is that this text is a weighty text. And it's my prayer that not only would you just go, oh yeah, that's a weighty text. My prayer is that each and every one of us would feel the weightiness 
of this text. We come to a text like this, and you know what we do? We try to, we try to explain it away. A text like this, a text like this comes and doesn't just rub up against long-held theological convictions. Texts like this come and punch us in the solar plexus and knock the wind out of us. If you take the word of God seriously and you feel the weight of this text, there is no way that you can just explain it away and go, not for me. There is an awesomeness. And by that I don't mean like pepperoni pizza is awesome. I mean it in like the old, old sense of the word. Awful. Full of awe. Can I just say right out of the gate, too many of you trifle with the word of God. Too many of you are glad to be hearers, but don't want to be doers. So many of you just think, you listen to the sermon, that was a good sermon. And what you've become is you've become skilled sermon tasters. God isn't... God isn't concerned about how you taste the sermon and how you give your your little food critic critique. He wants his word to come crashing down on our hard hearts and humble us before him. He wants his word to actually come and to smash the pride that causes us to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. And can I just tell you, not only are some of you really good sermon tasters, that you have no interest in actually having the word of God impact your life and change you. You just want to evaluate, criticize, critique, maybe even like. I remind you, Herod used to like to listen to John the Baptist. God wants his word to come and to crush our proud hearts. And it's my prayer that every heart that is lifted up today would be devastated. crushed so that it can be healed. So Paul is in the thick of Romans 11. And we saw last week, we labored to make this point, verse 16, when he talks about the first batch or first fruit, it's the Jewish elect remnant, then the whole lump is the inclusion of Gentiles. So the whole lump is, is Jew-Gentile together. So the lump is holy because the first fruit was holy. And so Paul is showing that the inclusion of Gentiles into the lump doesn't pollute the lump, 
but they become holy with the rest of the lump because of the first fruit. Then he says the root and the branches. So the root, we argued last week, is Abraham, the patriarchs, promises, covenant promises made to them. And the branches, which here are not identified, are both believing Jewish branches and engrafted Gentile branches. So the root is holy, and then the branches, both natural, that are still in the tree, and then uh, grafted in, are actually made holy by virtue of the root. And so Paul then says in verse 17 that there were branches that were broken off, that is natural branches, unbelieving Jewish people, so that believing Gentiles could be grafted in. In a sense, what Paul's doing as he's talking about this, this olive tree is he's talking about the composition, the makeup of the people of God, but there's something that is, that is, in a sense, a more pointed application than just, hey, you have branches that were cut off and you got branches that are grafted in. What Paul is doing is he is actually driving home the issue that Gentiles dare not take the posture of pride because some were cut off in order that they might be grafted in. So he says, don't boast. And then he says, but if you boast, you got to understand this. You don't support the root. The root supports you. You actually are grafted in. You don't contribute anything to the life and the health of the tree. You suck up the fatness of of the root. You suck up the the, the richness of that root. You you actually, by virtue of being grafted in, are now children of Abraham, heirs of promise, and it's not that you brought anything to this this tree. You are actually doing what? You are drinking in covenant blessings and grace that were given to Abraham and his descendants. And so there's no room to boast. There's no room to boast. And so this whole section is really, in a sense, an ethical section that warns against Gentile pride. So four times in in five verses, he gives us imperatives. Don't be arrogant towards the branches. Don't be conceited. Fear. And then behold then the kindness and severity of God. And so we pick up Paul's thought in verse 19, and he says, you will say then branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. We're going to see when we get to chapter 14, that there's some, there's some underlying conflict between Jewish believers and Gentile believers in the Roman assembly. And so Paul says, so you shall say, right, Gentile, Hey, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. And isn't it interesting? The self-adulation is seen in two things in this. First, I. Branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. But then the, the, the simple so that that's there. Branches were broken off so that I, can you hear it? Can you hear the pride? Can you hear the self-congratulation? Can you hear the self-adulation? Paul says, 
True enough. They were broken off because of their unbelief. Oh, this is, this, is so, this is so powerful when you think about it. Verse 20, New American Standard says, quite right. In other words, okay, so you've made, you've made uh, uh, an assessment of what God has done. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Don't be conceited, but fear. So understand this, right, you're right, insofar as God's act was breaking them off, but you're misinterpreting what God has done and why he's done it. In other words, you might make a right evaluation on what God has done. He broke off branches. He grafted me in. But we're all interpreters. You know that, right? You know you're an interpreter. You are a hermeneutician. You didn't even know it. Human beings are natural interpreters. And what do we interpret? We interpret everything. We we interpret ourselves. We interpret the world in which we live. We interpret God's acts. That is providence. And so let me just say what Paul's point is, is pretty simple here. And that is, if you're interpreting God's act of having cut off the branches in such a way that it leads you to pride, you're misinterpreting what God has done. Is it easy for us to misinterpret what God has done? Is it easy for us to misinterpret what God has done in a way that makes much of me? Right? You do know we do that. Okay? So we got these little interpretive glasses and, and they, have, they have a tint to them. My tint is Brian tint. Your tent is your name tent. Eric tent. Sorry, brother. Hey, Paul tent. Ray tent. We've all got it. We put it on. And that's the way that we view what God's doing. And we interpret God's acts in a way that makes much of us. And if that's what we're doing, then actually we are drawing the wrong conclusions. To draw the conclusion that somehow God did what he did because I'm superior or I deserve it is actually just a wicked interpretation. You know, we do this all the time. If you've come to the doctrines of grace, all right? We love the doctrines of grace. These banners point us to the doctrines of grace. This is our heartbeat. We love sovereignty of God in salvation and so forth. If you come to the doctrines of grace... And you come to see God's sovereign grace in election. You come to see God's sovereign grace in, uh, in irresistible grace. You come to see God's sovereign grace in the atonement. You see God's sovereign grace in the perseverance of the saints. And you turn around and you think you see those things because you're smarter than your friend who doesn't go to your church, you have drawn a wicked conclusion about something true. You know that if you believe in the doctrines of grace, it wasn't because you were smarter than anybody else. Right? 
believe the doctrines of grace. Why? Well, because of grace. <laughs> you do get it, right? Doctrines of grace. They're not doctrines of pride. They're doctrines of grace. I go, I, the, the only reason I believe these things is because of the grace of God. And so I don't, I don't dare look down on somebody else and exalt myself. And so, is it possible to have the right interpretation of what God has done and then draw profoundly wrong conclusions? And the answer is yes, we do it all the time. Now, what Paul's going to do in this text is he's going to bring into focus the reason why they were, why they were broken off, which, which is profoundly important. They were broken off because of unbelief. Now, why is that profoundly important? Well, because Paul has emphasized the sovereignty of God up to this point. Going back to chapter 9, he's emphasized the sovereignty of God. He's emphasized the sovereignty of God all the way through, even so much so that the judicial hardening that has come upon the rest, that is the the majority, is is an act of, of sovereign action. But now, notice what he does. He focuses to another cause of them being broken off, and that's their unbelief. What, 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 is, so, what is so weighty about that? Well, which one's true? Was it God's sovereignty, or was it their unbelief? Both. If you're an engineer, you're going to struggle with this. I I got the sovereignty box. How can a sovereignty box coexist with a my faith box? So let me just put your mind at ease. Neither your brain nor mine are big enough to actually answer that question. Okay? So what's the right answer? It's both. How can it be both? Were they cut off because that was God's decree? Or were they cut off because of their unbelief? And the answer is yes. You say, I don't don't like that. I don't like things that don't fit in my brain. That you must live an incredibly uncomfortable life. How much stuff doesn't actually fit in your brain? You got these little, I would think your brain like, um, like a bunch of file cabinets, right? The, the older you get, the recent file cabinets disappear. The ones that have been around for a long time, you're like, oh yeah. In 1984, I went and heard this guy and he spoke on this text and I remember that like it was yesterday. Okay? You got these files. Those files are the, in a sense, the human, logical, shaped files that we put stuff in. Which pre-existing human file does the Trinity go into? You weren't equipped with a file where you can put Trinity. And it makes sense. 
to you. I'm not saying the Trinity doesn't make sense. What I am saying is, it's beyond your ability to comprehend. Even if you've got the most orthodox language, it's still beyond your ability to comprehend, is it not? Or we, we sang, veiled in flesh the Godhead, see, hail the incarnate deity, and you go, okay, truly God, truly man. Which file does the hypostatic union fit into? You don't have a file. You know what you need? You need good old-fashioned Bible demolition and reconstruction to create new categories. Now, that doesn't mean that you figure everything out, but what it does mean is that you start to be more comfortable with things that don't seem to fit together. Sovereignty, election, 100%. No doubt, Romans chapter nine, who, end of argument, right? They're cut off because of their faith. Who's that on? That's on them. And the fact that they don't fit together so nice and neat, just make peace with the tension. The old Dutch theologian Herman Bovink said that it was mystery, which is the lifeblood of theology. So now I get to this part, and I'm like, okay, so Paul's argument is they were cut off because they didn't believe. That is, that's on them. So the emphasis now on their unbelief is going to bring attention to their own responsibility, and Paul's now going to push hard on this when he says they were cut off because of unbelief. That's on them. That was their decision. They rejected Messiah, and therefore God cut them off. But you stand by faith. Now, right away, you might think that Paul's like patting them on the back, and that's not what he's doing at all. He's saying they were cut off by, because of unbelief. You stand by faith. Faith is simply the corollary of unbelief. Sovereignty of God's behind it, make no mistake about it, but the word of God requires you. You ready? The word of God requires you, each and every one of us, To stand in faith and to continue in faith. Do you have an option tomorrow morning to stop believing in Jesus for the week so that you can do what you want to do? The Bible requires you to stand in faith, and to continue in faith. What is, what is required of you? What is required of you is that you run the race that's set before you with endurance, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, and crossing the finish line. That's what's required of you. Nothing less is required of you. Now, does the Bible teach us this? And the answer is all over the place. Let me just 
Let me just read a, a passage that is just familiar to all of us. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. What is it to believe in vain? It's not to continue in faith. This goes on and on and on and on. Daniel just covered this in Colossians 1, 22 and 23. And um, let me just read that one to you real quickly. We can multiply this tenfold, by the way. So Paul says in Colossians 1, he says, verse 21, Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet now he has reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Then notice this. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So here's Paul goes into Thessalonica. He's only there for three Sabbaths. He preaches the gospel. They respond. The word comes to them with power and full conviction of the Holy Spirit and much assurance. And so Paul has to leave because of, uh, uh, because of persecution. Paul starts a riot, all right? And now his life is at stake. And so he leaves. So he leaves these baby Christians. And so then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, he says, when when we could endure it no longer, we sent Timothy to find out about your faith. Was he worried about? We leave, persecution comes, they jettison the gospel and take the easy road. So Paul says, we, when we couldn't stand it anymore, we had to know. And so we send Timothy to find out about your faith unless you believed in vain. And our labor then was in vain. Now, Paul's point is simply this. Those broken branches were cut off because of unbelief. You now presently stand in your faith. That is, you must believe and you must continue to believe. So John Murray says the emphasis falls on faith because it's faith that removes all ground of boasting. You remember what Paul says back in Romans chapter 3 and verse 27, where is boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? Of works? No, if it was of works, you'd have reason to boast. Rather, it is by the law of faith. So what Paul's saying is there's no room for boasting if you stand by faith. Why? Because faith is simply the empty hands that have, that have clung to a powerful Savior, 
I don't come and bring something. I don't, I don't like, hey, Jesus, uh, I want to be saved. And here's all the good works that I've done. Doesn't work that way. You have to come with empty hands. Faith actually just says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for grace, or dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. So, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. And so there is a sense in which faith strips me down to nothing except my own sense of utter dependency upon God to save me. So what are the chances of a proud person bowing the knee and saying, I don't have anything. And so when Paul says, don't be proud. Yeah, they were cut off because of unbelief. You stand by faith. What is that faith supposed to do? What does that faith look like? What does that faith actually reveal about your heart? And it's not pride and it's not your own effort. And so Paul then turns around and he says, don't be conceited or don't become proud to assume that God broke off them in order to graft you in because of you. It's pride. Grace and pride are mutually exclusive categories. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. You do know that all of us are more proud than we think and all of us are not nearly as humble as we think. You believe that about yourself? Or do you think I got a perfect self assessment. Okay? There is no such thing as a perfect self assessment. Rob Rayburn defined pride as the idolatry of self. Pretty good. What does God think about pride? Well, bad news. Okay, this is the bad news according to Proverbs. God not only hates pride, he hates the proud. <gasps> I thought God hated the sin and loved the sinner. If you can show me in the Bible where there is a fundamental distinction between who we are and what we do and how God can only simply hate what we do then you have to dismiss Psalm 5, you have to dismiss Psalm 7, you have to dismiss Psalm 139. 
Okay? Now, is it true that God loves us while we're enemies? And the answer is yes. Is it possible for the eternal, infinite God, who's way bigger than can fit into our little pea brains, to actually love us with a love that seeks after us and yet also hate us because of our sin and our rebellion? And the answer is yes. So where does that say that in the Bible? There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes. That's pride. It's not haughty like you've got really sexy eyes. It's haughty. This is how you look at people. God hates it. Proverbs 16.5. Everyone with a proud heart is detestable to the Lord. There's more hope for a fool than for him. So pride, what does pride do? Pride makes us come up with all kinds of excuses for the stuff that we do. Pride actually justifies all kinds of sin. Pride will clothe our intellectual, or will clothe our unbelief. It's just intellectual autonomy. Pride always... is the self-application of lipstick to a pig. So Paul says, don't be proud. You know what he said to the proud Corinthians? Pride was a huge problem for the Corinthians. Paul said this, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Why in the world would you think you stand? I'm just better than the people that fall. You know, this was Peter's attitude, right? You're all going to deny me. Peter's like, Lord, that's a little harsh. I mean, I know that these dirt bags will probably deny you, but I never will. I'm a cut above. Take heed. If you think you stand, you are about to fall. And so Paul says, don't be conceited. Don't be proud. Then he turns around and says, but fear. Fear, yeah, it's right there in the Bible. Lots and lots and lots and lots of times. So we sing a song every once in a while that to me, it sort of captures this idea where Paul says, don't be conceited, but fear. We sing this song, in my heart, there is a treason One that poisons all my loves. 
So what, I, what do I need to fear? Okay, well, first of all, just fear your own heart. Fear your own heart. I remember years ago, our kids were little, and we're watching the Tom Sawyer movie. I don't even remember who was in it. And, and Aunt Polly, I don't think Aunt Polly actually said this, but it was in the movie. And she says to Tom, she says, Tom, just trust your heart. So I grab the remote and I stop it. And I say to my kids, that's a lie. That's a lie. You do not trust your own heart. What would, what would you trust that old, filthy, depraved, self-serving thing for anyway? This heart is deceitful above all else, desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who can know it? The Lord. I don't know it. I don't know it nearly as I should. And so when Paul says fear, there's a sense of healthy fear that distrusts this. You know, it's a lot of our problem. We trust this instead of this, and instead of going like this, we go like this. Verse 21 actually gives us another reason to fear. Verse 21, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either, right? So here's another reason to fear. God didn't spare them. What makes you think he's going to spare you? Ooh. Well, hold on a second. I thought this was a Baptist church. I know Baptists believe in once saved, always saved. Next week, we're going to devote the entire sermon to how the threat of Romans 11.22 can be consistent with promises of being kept. All right? So if you're like, if you're like, right now, just relax. But let me just say something. To fear, they were cut off. What about me? is not designed to get you to not be confident in God's grace. It's to be an antidote to pride that keeps you from being presumptuous. Verse 22 is the other great antidote to pride. And again, Motivation to fear. Behold in the kindness and severity of God to those who fail severity. Should severity, the severity of God, give me a sense of the fear of the Lord? Yes. Yes. Severity to those who fail. But to you, God's kindness. See, told you. If. 
you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you'll be cut off. And so the fear of the Lord produces humility because it sees both the kindness and the severity of God. How does that work in me? First of all, do I deserve kindness? No. I don't deserve the kindness of God. Can you say sitting here today that your life has been so stellar that you have earned God's kindness to you and in fact you think maybe he's cheated you a little bit because he should have given you a little more? Do I deserve severity? I do. I do. I, Brian Borgman, do not deserve the kindness of God. I deserve his severity. I have nothing in and of myself by which I can say, be kind to me. Do me good. Now. The only thing, the only thing that can really come out of my mouth when I start to, when I start to, to take that in is, oh God, thank you for sparing me from your severity and thank you for unmerited, undeserved kindness. They're cut off because of unbelief. What do you think Paul's getting at there? Okay, well, you know what? Maybe I better watch my own heart. I stand by faith. So how strong is my faith? If they were cut off because of unbelief and I stand by my faith, then, then isn't the next rational question is, how strong is my faith? Just do a little test for me. Don't answer out loud. I want you to think of the, this last week. Were there times where your faith was evident and manifested and brought glory to God? And the answer is, if you're in Christ, yeah. Yeah. Right? Any doubt? What's easier for you to remember over this last week? Expressions of faith in God or expressions of unbelief and lay hold of the lies of the world and the flesh and the devil. Do you really want to make this ultimately about how strong your faith is? Do you really want to make this about how, how much you stand while others fall? You do know pastors drop like flies. Did you know that? True story. Paul Tripp wrote a book about 2007, 8, right around there, called Dangerous Calling. And it was on the dangers and the pitfalls of ministry. And four, 
out of the five people, pastors who endorsed the book, have all disqualified themselves from ministry. Endorsing a book on dangerous calling. So, you think you wake up in the morning and go, my faith is so awesome, I'm going to stand today, and I'm going I'm to stand there like an Olympian athlete on that gold box, waving my little flag that says, yay, Brian. No. I'm going to say, God, please keep me today. Please hold my faith intact today. I am weak. Oh, how we should fear our own hearts. How we should fear our own weakness. And so Paul, Paul just in order to, to just drive this home, verse 21 is this, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. You know what this is called? It's called a threat. This is not hard theology. This is a warning. If you're a parent, you're familiar with this. Did we raise our children with threats? Promises are for grandchildren. (laughs) What's necessary if you're going to be a good parent? Keep your word. Be consistent. Empty threats. Okay. If you say, if you say to that kid, you do that one more time, I'm going to break your arm off and beat you with it. I have no idea how that came into my mind, but. <laughs> and, then, and then they did it again. And then I didn't break off his arm and beat him with it. Then they're going to go, yeah, he doesn't mean it. Right? Does God make empty threats? Does he make threats that he cannot follow through with. If God says, I'm going to break off your arm and beat you with it, he's going to break you off your arm and beat you with it. But I want to tell you, there's a threat that is far scarier than that. And so the threat serves a purpose. We'll talk about this next week, right? So we don't presume on God's grace and believe and live as if there were no consequences to the condition of our faith. So let me say it again. We cannot presume on the grace of God and believe and live as if there are no consequences to the condition of our faith. There's all the difference in the world between presumption and confidence. 
Confidence is my absolute certainty that God is who he said he is and he will do what he said he will do. Presumption is presuming on God because of something about me. You dare not presume on the grace of God and act as if the condition of your faith is of no consequence. Two minutes. Verse 22. Behold the kindness and severity of God. Feel the weight of that. Feel the weight. They were broken off because of unbelief. You stand by your faith. Don't be proud, but fear If God didn't spare them, what makes you think he's going to spare you too? Behold the kindness and severity of God. What is the kindness of God? It's the goodness of God. It's the generosity of God that God has poured out to us in his son, Jesus Christ. It's his kindness. It's his goodness that leads us to repentance. It is his kindness that we will be actually declaring the the, the supremacy of his riches of grace toward us in kindness through Christ Jesus throughout all eternity. It is the very kindness that's embodied in the incarnate Savior of the world when the kindness of God our Savior appeared. Paul says, behold the kindness. If you're grafted in, behold the kindness. If you're saved, behold the kindness. If you're forgiven, behold the kindness. Taste and see it. Behold it. Cherish it. Value it. If you don't value it, you're not going to endure. If you don't value his kindness and cherish his kindness and taste his kindness and and, and drink in his kindness, you don't have any resources. Behold the kindness of God. Behold the severity of God. This word's only used here. Interesting. Refers to his wrath and his retributive justice. So Paul then says, severity to those who fell. Those who fell, those who transgressed, those who rejected Messiah, severity, justice, wrath, cut off. Kindness, generosity, divine goodness on you. If you continue in his kindness, how do you not continue in his kindness? By being proud. If you are a proud person, you're not continuing in the kindness of God. Is there a condition here? If. It's clearly a condition. John Murray says there's no such thing as continuance in the favor of God in spite of apostasy. 
God's saving embrace and endurance are correlative. So it's, a, it's clearly a threat. Continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. It's a threat. Warning here is against the pride that lurks in these hearts. And the antidote is the fear of the Lord, which is evoked by his threats and his warnings. The threat and the promise, by the way, kindness, right? Kindness, if you continue, that's a condition that actually has both. Set before us the necessary condition which is to continue in his kindness. So I'm just going to, I'm going to finish. So I hope you're not hungry. This text gives us a warning, gives us a threat. And what I want to point out to all of us, especially those of you who Love God, you love the Bible, you love theology. What I want to say, first of all, is that election, unconditional election, does not negate our responsibility to believe, to stand in faith, and to continue in faith. Unconditional election does not negate our responsibility to run the race. It does not negate our responsibility to stand and to continue. And so what this means is that there's absolutely no room for pride. There's no room for self-confidence. How these, how these warnings should just drive us right into the, the arms of our Savior. There's no room for presumption. So the application, take God's warning seriously. How does this relate to the perseverance of the saints? How does it relate to the security of the believer? Next week, that's all we'll talk about. Because it's big. Let me give you the short answer. First of all, I think the Bible tells us unequivocally that genuine believers will be kept all the way to the end. John 10, 27 to 29. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me, I give eternal life to them. No one's able to pluck them out of my hand. Philippians 1.6, God who started the good work in us will complete it till the day of Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 1.5, so we are kept therefore by the power of God through faith for salvation to be revealed in the last times. There are, there are many, many promises that say God's true people, genuine believers, will be preserved, kept all the way to the end. 
But genuine believers not only embrace the promise to be kept, they also take seriously the threat. So that believing the threats keep me from ditching my faith. Believing the threats, which are real threats, not just merely hypothetical, oh, in some other alternative universe, this might be what God would do to you if you could, right? No, actual real threats, real threats that do what? That serve as means to keep me running, means to keep me believing, means to make me continue in the faith. So, Used this illustration before like 50 times when we went through Hebrews, but that was a long time ago. You get on Highway 50, curvy road, right? Going around the American River, you see these, these yellow signs. What are they called? Caution or warnings. Okay. I like the one that has the truck tipping over. <laughs> right? Yeah, and rocks falling, right? And then like hell, right? I mean, just, okay? So, Romans eleven twenty two is like a warning sign. It's got a truck tipping over, rocks coming down. And let's say, I'm just driving through Highway 50. I mean, my eyes are basically closed. I've done this drive so many times. I know it says 40, but 80 is probably pretty good. And then I come up to a warning sign. I see a warning sign. You know what I do? I slam on my brakes and I say, oh, egads, I'm going to die. Right? Isn't that what you do? Pull off the side of the road. I should not go on any further. I will die. Is that the point? No, the point is to keep you safe. The warning is not an implication that you won't make it. The warning is a catalyst so you do make it. Does that make sense? Okay. So... Do I love the warnings of God? Yes. What do they do for me? Don't let pride have the upper hand in your heart, Brian. Don't be self-sufficient and arrogant, Brian. Fear. Fear God. Be distrustful of this thing in here. What do the warnings do? Lord, thank you for your kindness, your awesome kindness. I love it. I delight in it. This afternoon, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. What are we going to do? We're going to, we're going to taste and see that the Lord is good by giving us his own son. And so I consider God's awesome kindness. And I'm just like, Lord, I want to swim in it. I want to be immersed in it. And then I consider his his awful severity. And what do I do? I see the warning, awful severity. What do I do? I avoid it. 
Shrink back from it. If I hear God says, you fall off of that cliff, you're going to die. I don't go, I wonder just how close I can get to the edge of that cliff before I actually fall over and die. Okay, if that's what you do, there is a simple word for you. I see that warning. You fall over that cliff, you're going to die. Lord, I don't even want to see what's over there. I don't even want to get close. Keep me from that edge. Right? In order to continue in his kindness, I have to have a holy desperation. Father, please keep this old ratty heart. Save me from myself. Keep me from sin. Don't let presumptuous sin reign over me. Guard me. Guard my heart. Guard my eyes. Guard my feet. You've promised in the new covenant that you would work in me so that I don't turn away from you. I pray that you would do that for me today. What is that? That is spiritual health. Be desperate. Don't be self-confident. Don't be proud. Don't think you got this down. Don't think, you know, I've, I've been to those conferences and I've read this book and I've got it all down. We don't have it down. Be determined. God, let me behold your kindness and your severity. Let's pray. Father, we we pray right now for the proud self-sufficient, self-confident. We pray that your word would be like a, a mighty deluge that overwhelms the proud and brings them to humility. We pray that you'd help us. Help us to be desperate for you. Help us to cherish that we taste and see that the Lord is good. Lord, you're good to me. Receive our praise and our thanks this day. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com.
That's gracenevada.com.